Welcome to Roll Calling, a podcast about actors we love and the movies we love them in. I'm Ned Baker, a filmmaker and a public eye. And I'm Caroline Sita, a film and TV critic looking for the next Van Gogh. The way this podcast works is that Caroline and I take turns curating a five-film miniseries starring an actor we love. Last episode, we began our Jeffrey Wright series with a look at his work in the James Bond franchise, culminating in this month's very long-delayed release of No Time to Die. And this week, we're going way, way back in time to 1996 to look at a 31-year-old Jeffrey Wright, which is how old I am, First starring turn in the art biopic, biopic? I say biopic. Yeah, the biopic (laughs) Basquiat. And (laughs) joining us today, whose lovely infectious laugh you can already start to hear for that discussion, is none other than actor, game master, and podcaster Jules. Welcome, Jules. Hello. (laughs) Hi, Jules. Thank you for joining us. It's lovely to be here. Thank you for having me. <laughs> yeah, we're glad to have you. Jules is a, a wonderful individual whom I met in the sort of theater world, in, in the art it. world, broadly speaking. And uh, <laughs> I was so mean to you. <laughs> well, <laughs> sure, but always in a always in a way that I, you know, sort of found sort of charming. I'm like a Sour Patch Kid. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Jules is like a Sour Patch Kid, sort of like a little like sup nerd. It's ah, like exactly. a pretty standard greeting. Yeah, yeah, that's um, real. <laughs> but I sort of, uh, I guess I pushed through that and assumed, you know, yeah, that maybe yeah. under there was enough uh, enough affection to come on the podcast. So. How good of you. Oh, uh, and so unless this is some sort of elaborate troll on your part. <laughs> yeah, I'm actually taking over your podcast from here. Oh, on. nerd. Oh. Welcome to my podcast. I'm going to talk about the movies I like. <laughs> oh, sure got my ass, damn. <laughs> Um, so, uh, it's great to have you here and, uh, yeah, we're talking about the movie Basquiat. So it's a, it's a 1996 film. So it's a biopic of this visual artist, visual artist and, you know, multidisciplinary artist, Jean-Michel Basquiat. It's made only eight years after his tragic death from a heroin overdose. Mm. Uh, so it's fresh in the world there. I don't really have a sense of how much of a splash this movie made at the time. Should we also say that this movie is currently... Very hard to find, as we all discovered while prepping for this podcast. It's it's one of those sort of rare, although I've run into this before, movies that is just not not available to rent via iTunes or Amazon. It's not streaming anywhere, at least for now. Basquiat is a bit lost in the shuffle. So if you haven't seen this movie before, don't worry. We will try to gear this conversation towards people of <laughs> all levels of knowledge of Basquiat the artist and Basquiat the film. I was able to rent it off YouTube. So oh, you, I didn't think to if, try that. Jules yeah, coming I, in with, okay, listeners, be like, <laughs> be smart like Jules and not dumb like me and check no, to see no, if no. it's rentable on YouTube. <laughs> I never think to look there either, but for some reason, if it's nowhere else, it might be on YouTube. <laughs> yeah. Well, nice work finding it. And this, was this a first viewing for both of you? Yes. Yeah, for me as well. Yeah, I think I saw it in high school or late middle school because my friend Nick Scottarossi, for whatever reason, I think really latched onto it. Mm. I feel like the the main pull then, not being familiar with Jeffrey Wright or Jean-Michel Basquiat, was like, there's a movie where David Bowie plays Andy Warhol. That was like the hook that dragged me in. (laughs) I mean, what a hook. Yeah, it it is. I think that's a pretty inspired piece of casting right there. Absolutely. not only does he do a good job imitating Andy Warhol, but also like, how can you get 
someone who has that sort of real life exoticism and eccentricity. <laughs> mm-hmm. You have that. to hire an alien to play another alien. <laughs> that's, <laughs> you said it, Jules. So that's maybe kind of like one of the most high profile casting pieces in this. Although he's really just like one member of a very large ensemble that kind of rotates through the film. So I remembered it from then, but I couldn't have told you that many details about it. I couldn't definitely couldn't have told you definitively whether or not it's good. There are things you like in high school. You can go back and say, "Ooh, boy, this is a this is a hot trash fire." But <laughs> how did you all find the film this time? Yeah, I can jump in first. I, to be honest, I'm not a hundred percent sure what to make of this film. I think that mm. there are incredible pieces in it. Like it is a very, I think it's torn between being this like very conventional biopic. Here's sort of the beats of the young struggling artist, and then they get famous, and they're sort of dealing with that sort of ending we don't see his death but we get the final title card that says that he died at age 27 so there was there's a conventional side to it and then there's also more of like an art an art housey side to it with sort of abstract imagery and there's a scene where Basquiat's at a museum and he's sort of leaving and, and all the people in the room like freeze and he walks through them and it's, <laughs> it feels very abstract and so I don't know if those two sides of the movie ever fully blend And I don't know if the movie ever quite finds its center for me, especially as it's like whatever its take on Basquiat might be. But that being said, I do find so many of its individual pieces just like incredibly compelling, especially the Wright performance, the Jeffrey Wright performance. So I'm a little I don't know if I have a like overall this is my take. This is what I would rate it. But I definitely had an interesting time watching it, I guess. What about you, Jules? Yeah, I mean, I think you I think you hit it on the head. Like I. First of all, listen, I'm a very interesting person to be on this podcast in that I don't watch movies. And, like, this is, like, a film. And yeah. I super don't watch films, <laughs> right? We gave you kind of a weird one to be your, uh, <laughs> no. your film for I, the I year. turned it on, and I saw that Miramax opening. I'm like, okay. I'm about to see something that was in, like, Theater 101. Mm-hmm. Someone telling me about, like, how to cut a movie or something like that. So... I was like, I had to brace myself. I was eating a sandwich at the time. I was like, I can't do this. I can't do two things. <laughs> to, to watch this. It was wild because, you know, I think for me, like considering, so so the guy that made this movie, whose name I can't say. I think it's just Schnabel. I think, it's because, Schnabel? I think you're right. Because he did okay. these French films, I assumed that his name was Julien Schnabel. Yes. When I first oh, learned about him from, okay. Le, from Le Scafandre Le Papillon. The Diving Bell and the Butterfly. But I think it's just, he's born in Brooklyn. I think it's just Julian Schnabel. I believe that's what the trailer says. I In the trailer, it was like a film by Julian Schnabel. And I agree that the name sounded not as fancy as I would have expected it to. (laughs) So this guy. Right. So he knew Basquiat, right? Yeah. They were in the art world together. In the art world together. And it came off so kind of impersonal, Mm -hmm. which was weird if it's a movie like sort of made by one of your friends. I was like... There's not a lot of intimacy here. Like, there's a lot of scenes, and like they all are like kind of interesting in their own respect. Like, but there's no like through line of like who was this person. Mm-hmm. You know, it was like almost like watching a caricature of like someone that you've heard about. So I was like, what was the disconnect between like you kind of knowing this person and you obviously had having a lot of sources to draw from if you were like part of that community, you know people from that community? Was this person just like so impenetrable? That like no one knew who he really was or 
was it something that in translation that guy kind of got lost i think that's a very interesting like question to raise and probably the answer is that there must be some column a some column b but Mm. can i also say i think there might be a column c of the question of did schnabel actually know basquiat well yeah or was it a thing where it's like oh we were in the same circle so therefore you know he was an acquaintance Mm. and i can sort of take ownership i think i only raise that question because i've seen other people raise that question including like jim jarmusch who i think maybe was closer to Basquiat. And he has said, I don't want to watch this film because I feel like Schnabel sort of just took a person he didn't really know, but pretended he was friends with him and made a movie about him. Interesting. That does seem to be some of the criticism is around. So it's a story by uh, John Bowe, Michael Holman, and I'm probably going to mispronounce, but Lech Majewski. Those are the screenwriters for Basquiat. Yes, yes. So they wrote this story in an earlier draft. And uh, I actually watched a Jeffrey Wright interview from 1996 where he talks about Michael Holman's had a very personal relationship. As I understand it, and now I can't remember where I read this, so I can't verify this, but I think like Schnabel was consulted. They went, you know, approached him about the script, and he got so excited about it that he then purchased the rights so that he could do it himself and adapt it himself. And yeah, a lot of the criticism seems to be that Schnabel kind of actually wanted to tell his own story more right. than Basquiat's. And there's he's like the Gary Oldman character, right? Exactly. So there's this character of Albert Milo, played by Gary Oldman, who comes in. And, you know, it's really hard to say, like, who would be, like, second build. Or t- I mean, they, they, someone is second build, but... There are a lot of characters that kind of loom in significantly for about half an hour's worth of the film and then kind Mm. of make their way out. His stuff is really at the end. But yeah, Gary Oldman is supposed to be like a cipher for the director. And I remember someone citing specifically the details of pajamas and surfing are Schnabel's interests, not Basquiat's. (laughs) So it feels as if he sort of layered these things onto the character. And I think it's a very interesting point to observe or to raise, Jules, about like whether or not this film sort of has intimacy with that character. So, you know, at the Mm. end of the day, like I can't definitively answer like how well does Schnabel know? How well does he know this character or this individual? And is he just layering his own story on there? But... I do think it is an interesting question to raise of like, is this an intimate portrait of this person or not? Yeah, I mean, it didn't come off as intimate to me. And it's interesting because I think so much of the story was about how, you know, he was sort of kind of like like taken by these like white, rich uh, art people, right? That sort of like, you know, came and scooped him up right out of the gutter and like started like selling off all of his, you know, shit, right? So... <laughs> And then, like, you get this biopic of him after he's dead where someone has kind of done the same thing, like, again, mm-hmm. right? Where, like, I'm missing kind of his, Basquiat's voice from this movie a, a little bit. It's like, seems like more kind of white gazy, right? So, like, we get a lot of, like, Andy Warhol and we get a lot of, like, all of these other people that were sort of, like, in his life around his orbit, but not like him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yet, in some ways, I also feel like we don't even really get those people in an interesting way because they're mm. only in the movie for a short amount of time. Like I was I was almost thinking, okay, if you want to do this movie and you do want to have a ma- if you if you really want to have like a secondary character be a major focus, I almost wonder if the whole movie should have just been about Basquiat and Warhol's friendship. Just make that the entire movie if that's what yeah. 
it kind of feels like to me that's what Schnabel's most interested in. But then we're we're not getting that all the way through. And so there'll be interesting scenes between the two of them. But then the movie kind of is like it all the scenes in general are just very short and they'll kind of fade out quickly and we'll jump to a new one. And sometimes there's time jumps between them. So we sort of have we'll have like an interesting scene of Warhol and Basquiat's friendship and then it'll jump ahead and it's like off screen they've had a fight and they're no longer speaking. Right. But I'm like, oh, yeah. that that fight seems like that would have been the interesting thing to see. But we sort of skip past that. And and so I found that choice to be equally strange. There's that like massive time jump too that kind of skips over all of like uh, his his fame. You know, like all the things mm-hmm. that like were his major accomplishes minutes we get like Christopher Walken comes yeah. in and sort of like tells it to us. And we're yeah, like, when, when, when Christopher Walken says like, you've been dating lots of these women, you dated Madonna. I'm like, oh, I didn't realize that he was no longer with the Claire Forlani character. Mm-hmm. There's kind of like a chunk at the beginning where he's like 19, 20, 21, just coming, just being discovered, you know, quote unquote. And then we do get, we get that time jump and he's more like 24 sort of peak of fame. But I agree it's not like – in a way, I guess I like that it's – the time jump is subtle there as opposed to – I feel like a lot of times the movie would do like a montage of like him walking mm-hmm. a red carpet with Madonna and him, you know, <laughs> at a gala. And, and it could have been a little cheesier, I think. Yeah, but I do yeah. agree that it it all – all these little choices add to the sense of remove that maybe we're all talking about, that little bit of distance there. Mm. Yeah. I- I'll say this. I am not sure that I dislike the structure of mm-hmm. it. Although I do find it very strange. There were lots of times when I was like, the way this movie is structured is so peculiar. The things we're seeing and the kind of like rapid jump. I mean, what it feels like to me, this is maybe benefit of the Dowdy, but it feels like to me, like looking back at a life and having memories, like the memories don't always, you know, there is a story that you can find that runs through it, but the the memories don't. Uh, lay themselves out in a way where you know it's like you'll go from a nice memory with your girlfriend to an immediately like a toxic memory with your girlfriend without any sort of transition and sometimes you'll just move on to something else that seems important because those were the defining moments i just like i've said this before i just like 90s movies this (laughs) feels kind of like raw in a way it it feels it feel in a way that does feel sort of i don't know new york city arty in a way, mm. it does It does feel like a collection of scenes laid out for you to interpret them as you will. And I like that rawness, although sometimes it does feel a little, a little clumsy. I would say, so if Little Women, we talked about Little Women in our Christian Bale cycle, and we highlighted that as like the ultimate like 90s cozy historical, you know, <laughs> like big studio film. I do feel like Basquiat's kind of like the ultimate indie 90s drama you know like sort of art housey but sort of accessible and even the soundtrack and the styling it does feel like an incredible it feels 90s but like in a different way than the little women felt 90s that soundtrack is aggressive too sometimes those songs came in so hot that tom waits just like like what is going on I, I also know that, too, that the soundtrack was just mixed so loud sometimes. There's a scene which is at one of his first, like, big art openings, and it feels like he's making a bunch of mistakes really fast while overwhelmed. He's in a this relationship with this character, Gina, who's sort of a composite character played by Claire Forlani, and has kind of walked all over her on a number of occasions, but she ends up 
making contact with this character just called Big Pink, played by Courtney Love, who he had this... Oh, she kills, too. I love her in this. You like Courtney Love in this? Oh, my God, she's great. Yeah. (laughs) So it's kind of a, like, oh, the two women in my life are now in a room together, and they realize at the same time as he's, like, pushing through this crowd to try to stop this encounter happening. And then, like, thrown off by that, he then allows this... Uh, art dealer who was a real person Bruno Bischofberger played by Dennis Hopper to buy this big painting that he said was not for sale which one of his earlier sort of champions a very complicated also true person named Rene Ricard and we should unpack him in a second anyway it's basically like this extremely tense gallery opening scene and the song is that all there is which is this like one of the weirdest like loungy uh like it's okay i'm looking it up now peggy lee is that all there is 1969 is just playing like so aggressively (laughs) and i think has a great effect of making the whole thing feel like just like overwhelming in a in a sort of a sensory sensory overload way that i find i i like that scene quite a lot it's and, a good scene it's stressful for sure and i think that we're gonna probably my prediction over the rest of this conversation is keep coming back to like that was a great scene is this a great movie mm. that's built out of those scenes maybe one thing to point out too is that this was schnabel's first film so he had had all the success in the art world selling these huge – I think it's actually his art that's in the movie as the Gary Oldman character's art. And it's like these huge like warehouse wall size like paintings. Some of them sort of have like plates on them and stuff. Anyway, Schnabel had all the success in the art world. Then this is his his first film and he's made several more critically acclaimed films since then. Ned mentioned Diving Bell and the Butterfly. He did – this Javier Bardem film called Before Night Falls. And he did, I still haven't seen it, but he did a, um, he actually did a Van Gogh movie called At Eternity's Gate with Willem Dafoe, who's briefly in this. Um, I've heard that's titles. Good. Those titles I know. Are <laughs> <laughs> um, they all sound like films, don't they? They sound like films. For sure. They are, <laughs> they are film titles. Um, but I do think maybe also, you know, as we're, as we're sort of throwing into the pot all the things that, that are good and bad about this film. I think the fact that it is a first film, it has some of those qualities of being a first film. And if anything, it's the, it's like the cast is so high profile in this. I don't know. We've mentioned Oldman and Bowie and Christopher Walken, but it just feels like almost every scene is a person, a famous person you've seen. I think that's probably because Schnabel had, you know, just the connections to get a lot of famous people in his movie for a scene or two. But I think there there is a strange disconnect between you're like, there's so many famous people in this movie. This must be a very, you know, high profile, well-respected director. But at the same time, this is almost like watching a new director's first indie film, which often has a little bit of choppiness. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of like, I don't know, I guess just the thing to keep in mind that some of this weirdness that we're trying to unpack how much of this was intentional versus accidental versus whatever, that some of this <laughs> yeah. is just, oh, this person's never made a film before and they're sort of figuring it out as they go along. I can definitely identify with, you know, if you look back at my first music video that I made, which was sort of like how I started transition from theater to film in my mm-hmm. 20s, this music video, uh, Capricorn for Friends of the Bog. And... I haven't made a feature film yet. I'm hoping to do that sometime in the next few years. When I do that, I'm sure that I'm going to throw so much fucking spaghetti at the wall that like <laughs> later on, if anyone d- deigns to critically appraise my film, will say like, this element maybe didn't belong. And yet, you know, things like, like the surfing, which doesn't, does the surfing in the sky. This is sort of like a 
Basquiat, there'll yeah. be these scenes where Basquiat looks up to the sky and it's like video projection, yeah. almost like as if it's like an arty film that it's like footage of surfers projected into the sky. Yeah, the sky looks like waves with surfers on it. And so wild. And <laughs> it's a I think it's a great image. Does it is there any evidence that it has anything to do with Basquiat or the kind of imagery that he created? No. not to my knowledge <laughs> unless it had like something to do with him wanting to go to maui i don't know here's a are any of us like sort of basquiat knowledgeable about basquiat as a person do we You're have to say the word experts and pull back <laughs> yeah exactly i know like a baby bit because i took ap art history in high school and mm-hmm. that is like probably the one black artist you talk about you know mm-hmm. in in art history mm-hmm. which is all very eurocentric um but i don't know a lot mm-hmm um, I know he ended up going to Maui for like a bit, like towards well, the end go. of his life. Um, I don't remember anything about him surfing though. Yeah. <laughs> so with this movie, this is some. So I review TV show The Crown, and something I frequently grapple with while I'm reviewing that show is how much am I reviewing? Here's an episode I watch, and I I should just treat everything in it as characters and just write about how well it handles that. Uh-huh. Versus these are also real historical figures, and like. I'm curious about how well or the choices it's making in adapting their lives. And I think I'm at a similar crossroads with this movie where I'm like, I don't really know a ton about the real Basquiat. So I can in no way say whether this is like an accurate portrayal of his personality or his interests or his journey or anything like that. But within the sort of confines of this film, as it depicts him as a fictional character, I will say I found the Jeffrey Wright performance just like incredibly compelling that really presents him as this like, wounded puppy dog young soul who in a lot of ways i think is both ambiguous and like ambivalent like sort of wants to be famous but also doesn't want to be famous the like the character is a little bit passive in a way that i think i don't know if the real life basquiat was like that or not so i think that if he is not if he wasn't like that that's a fair critique of this movie to say it didn't depict him accurately but as a sort of fictional character this movie's presenting, I actually sort of found the levels right found to play within Basquiat's like withdrawn personality to be very compelling to watch. And that I think is what was if there is a center that was holding me through, even though maybe this wasn't digging into, you know, Basquiat's psyche as much as it could have, I did find that pretty consistently compelling to watch throughout. Yeah, I think he kills. I I love it. His physicality is just amazing Mm -hmm. like such a such a master of movement and also just so hot (laughs) this movie (laughs) he's so sexy him and benicio del toro i was like oh my god everyone in this movie is so fucking hot yeah benicio del toro is walking around in his like flowy shirts and basketball jerseys and his like shoes with heels and when so he's driving around the jeep at the end there's this sort of moment Benicio del Toro plays really Basquiat's like one of his like first friends. So he's got it really is kind of like a movie about like a series of friendships. And this can make it feel sort of disjointed because people will just exit the movie, which I think is drawn from this idea that that the actual artist did have like he did sort of suffer from a number of severed relationships. It seems like there was this element of like emotional instability resulting from this meteoric rise to stardom which is which is a phrase that often has positive connotations but as this movie figures it it also seems like essentially being like chewed up by the art world and 
So all, all this is to say, one of the first friends, his sort of friend when he's still like nobody, working as like an electrician's assistant and like living in a box in Tompkins Square Park. Benny is his friend. They're in like a noise rock band together. They do drugs together. They walk around. They talk about fame. They talk about the myth of John Henry in a scene I really love. Mm-hmm. Um, and Benny kind of like he kind of falls out with Benny, and at a moment where it's like, hmm, yeah, everybody was an asshole through that, that whole conversation. <laughs> but Benny comes back at the very end and kind of like finds him like sleeping on the street again after. I don't know, something that is not really explicitly explored at the end, but he has some sort of, I don't know, episode. What I, you know, stri- what strikes me as, you know, a, like a mental illness episode and is like wandering the street. It's not entirely clear, like, where drugs play into that, mm. like, what he's experiencing mm-hmm. in that moment. But this is after Warhol's death as well. So that's sort of yeah. been the yes. inciting incident to, like, shock Basquiat out of his. Exactly. And so Benny, like, picks him up again and they just drive around in this Jeep. And Basquiat is like standing on the seat and surfing. Again, yeah. it's this this surfing thing, which <laughs> you know they sort of sell as an image there. But it's like it's a cool. They're shot. both. It's, it's a, a really cool, cool shot. shot. It's a yeah. cool scene, and it's like it's both of them being extremely hot, and uh, <laughs> and Jeffrey Wright being an extremely cool physical actor. I mean, mm-hmm. he does uh, just a lot of very good work in there for a character who sometimes whose physicality is extremely kind of small and restrained Mm. um i mean he's not like a like a jumping around kind of guy he's kind of like i don't know how to describe (laughs) it's like little ticks you know yeah it tells like leans a lot lot. he's not the kind to have like very straight posture he's always kind of slumping or leaning it's like a little bit of the kind of james dean stuff we were talking about in that series ned i feel like just a lot of like i'm gonna sit on everything in a strange way yeah Yeah, he's got a weird, like, like not quite comfortable in his body physicality. Mm-hmm. Right, you know, I think I think Jeffrey Wright is comfortable in his body, but he's 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 playing a character who seems to not be fully like fit in his body, and although he is in good shape, um, and yeah, it's also to talk about I forget what phrase you use, Caroline, like like youthfulness, like he like youthful energy or soul. It's like there's a moment when he's talking with his girlfriend. Gina about having babies and she says like you're your own baby mm-hmm. which <laughs> yeah such an accurate <laughs> assessment that was of a the really situation good line. from her <laughs> yeah yeah it really seems like his portrayal consciously or not is of someone who is like a little bit of an arrested development like trapped in childhood thing and the very the credits and one of the final scenes um, the final scene where he describes this sort of myth or folktale of a little prince, like mm. they show us this like young boy. The o- The opening scene is like maybe a realistic depiction of him. And the last one is this sort of fantasy depiction. But I think we see a young, a young Basquiat, like wearing this golden crown, which mm-hmm. was this recurring image in his work. And yeah, we have this idea of him as being sort of vulnerable in the way that he like parts of him feel seems like it has is still childlike is still like not matured jules so as as a famous non-movie watcher (laughs) did you have a (laughs) sense of jeffrey wright going into this or do you feel like this is sort of one of your now definitive jeffrey wright films i've never seen him lead in anything but Mm -hmm. you know i've seen like a lot of like you know the greatest hits like the west worlds the boardwalk empire 
I I do have a memory of him being in the Hunger Games. I don't remember what he did in it, though. I think that was probably the first time I saw him. Noah's Boardwalk Empire was the first time mm-hmm. I saw him. It's similar to what he does in Westworld. Little, like, <laughs> yeah. whisper scientist with small exactly, glasses. Yeah. yeah, just, like, you know, hot nerd, I guess. Yeah, cool. yeah, exactly. Yeah, I feel like he's a little, he's even weirder in the Hunger Games. He's, 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 you got a little of this, like, sort of, like, twitchy weirdo, Jeffrey yeah. Wright, which, which yeah. I think you also get in Source Code, a movie that we mentioned briefly on the last episode, which I think is really good. Not but, seen Source Code. <laughs> well, it's, it might be worth your time. I don't know that we're going to do an episode on it, but it's a, uh, it's, it's a good one. Um, yeah, I, I feel like the, the, the mannerisms that he, that he pulls down in this are, Having seen personally very limited video of Basquiat, the mannerisms seem true to life. Although I will say, mm. like the videos I've seen of him, he does seem to have more of a sense of humor. Again, we're kind of like wavering back and forth between that question you raised, Caroline, of like, do we right. dissect it just as a film, or do we dissect it as a depiction of the true individual? Um, and I'm going to keep doing both. Uh, <laughs> There's a video which I think we can throw on the Twitter or in the show notes, which is an interview. It's not nearly as hostile as the one that goes on with the sort of unnamed interviewer character played by Christopher Walken in this, right. which I think is also a great a great scene. And kind of like, it's interesting to have it come from, the, from a journalist, but it's kind of the scene that most um, like hits the nail on the head of like a hostile basically like racist white traditional art world that's sort of saying who are you and what is this crap that you are calling art and and why do you feel you deserve to be so successful there is a true interview of someone like asking him about the different elements of a painting that does sort of feel like it it uh it gets at that sort of energy it's them saying like where do these words come from you just snatch them out of the pages of history books and he's like no i didn't snatch them i I don't know. I saw them. I read them. Why why did you put that there with parasite? Um no man, it just does that does that mean people? No, man, it just means parasites. Um <laughs> so yeah, yeah. so but it, I do feel like in terms of you know the the biopic task of actually getting someone's mannerisms down, he mm-hmm. does do a good job, but he also feels like a lot of it has this sort of doomed hero energy yeah around it there's a little bit of like knowing we're leading up to a tragic ending i guess you are sort of playing to the tragedy of it maybe more than the life of it yeah that may be coming from the director as well as right but i don't know it felt like it felt like this was a character who could not survive in the long run Mm -hmm. no yeah definitely like one of those like classic tortured artists like bright flame burns like quickly kind of things and you know that's always very clear in retrospect you know as these people are alive is it ever like super like obvious like you know you think about amy winehouse right who like came on the scene like super hot didn't last very long i don't think anybody saw like oh she won't be around for you know like but if you like go back and you like make a biopic of that person's life of course you're gonna play up like how how largely they lived and how Mm -hmm. that was like leading up to their uh, quick death or something like that yeah yeah like a biopic made while someone's alive and thriving is going to have a very different energy than a biopic made after someone has died tragically young even though Mm. maybe they shouldn't like maybe the correct way to make a biopic about someone 
that dies tragically young is not to yeah. play into the tragedy of it. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's interesting just just to have this this interview and be able to compare a fictional scene that's very similar in nature to a real life documented moment. You have more of a sense watching Jeffrey Wright get assailed by Christopher Walken that like he just seems fragile, you know? He seems mm-hmm. vulnerable. Like he's not going this guy can't last, you know. He's he's like teetering on the edge. And you don't have that watching the real the real artist be interviewed by a real interviewer. He's like it seems you have a you have some similarities in that you seem like this is a guy who's constantly being asked to kind of like justify his own place. And uh, this is a guy who, you know, sort of mainstream audiences are going to be looking at him with this like very skeptical eye. But you don't have a sense of like, here's someone who, yeah, is like a flame about to be snuffed out. Mm-hmm. That That's not yeah. really there in the, in the real life. But again, like... Yeah, they're making a they're making a narrative here, and I I do yeah. feel like if there is a thread running through this, maybe one of the threads is it feels like a guy who had this brilliance, but like couldn't he just couldn't survive what this world was gonna do. Absolutely, I really liked that interview scene. Actually, I think that was probably my favorite scene in the movie because I think there is I don't know if it's in the script or if it's just coming from right. But in addition to the sense of Basquiat sort of being too fragile for this world, I also think there's a sense that he's like super smart, like way smarter than he he lets on in his like public persona of kind of being mm-hmm. this. I mean, stoner isn't the right word, but like a very like loosey goosey artist type. But then he's like very he's very quick and he's frequently very quick to like look for sort of microaggressions whether intentional or not but he's like hyper aware of how people are perceiving him and then how he wants to respond and i think you see that really well in the interview scene there's i think the christopher walken character is like you know what do you think about being a black artist and mm. boss gets like well i paint with all the colors not just black like it's a very right. funny you know like that <laughs> actually is i was like oh that's like a really funny like come back to that sort of inane question um and then he has a moment where he's talking about how he i think i think the interviewer is like why do you draw people so crudely and he's like well i think people are crude like he's very he just comes across very smart about his artistry in that scene yeah. and so i really i feel like that was that was maybe the scene where i felt like i did get to know Basquiat the most absolutely yeah and towards the beginning and you know we don't know how much of this is accurate but like his relationship with gina you know just being like so like sweet and tender mm-hmm. and romantic was just like Really nice. And it's not a romantic comedy, even though they hit a lot of the points of romantic comedy, having like mm-hmm. the other woman and they meet in the same place and all that stuff. Um, but it was nice to see those like tender moments. And with his um his mother at the very mm-hmm. beginning. We only get one scene, I think, with him and his mother when she she's in a, a ward or something like that. He goes to like have um lunch with her or something, and uh, he's like, "Oh, I'm getting married" or something like that. He's like basically seen Gina once, and he goes to his mom. He's like, "I'm getting married." (laughs) It's similar to the time where he's like, "Let's just let's have a baby." (laughs) Like sometimes you get the sense that he sort of has he like romanticizes his life, and he's like, "I'll do this one thing, and everything will be perfect from there." Yeah, Yeah. and you know, go back to like we were talking about a childlike quality of like looking at the world, and maybe like pure is a a better word than childlike, where it just Mm -hmm. seemed like a a pure soul that was just like perhaps too fragile for this harsh mm-hmm. world <laughs> yeah. that that again true or not definitely seems to be the character they're setting up here i mean one of yeah. you know the very first scene where he meets gina he literally plays with his food but in a way yeah. that is like 
it looks like playing with his food from the outside, but he's actually creating this work of art. Honestly, mm-hmm. that's kind of a, you know, now that I say it, that's kind of a brilliant thing. So basically, he sits down at this diner table, and there's nothing in front of him. So he takes the little, like, syrup ladle and pours this, like, pile of syrup on, the, so on wild. the ground. What a wild thing to do. And he does <laughs> and it then, so casually. Like, oh, of course, yeah. this is what you do when you sit at a restaurant. Really casually, just pours syrup on the table. And then, like, while looking at her with a sort of artist focus, like, very smoothly, like, uses, grabs the menu and uses the menu to kind of, like, smooth it out into a palette. Mm. And then with a fork is, like, drawing a sort of Basquiat-esque portrait of her. And... And then he gets kicked out. And so, yeah, that's kind of like, you kind of do have a lot of the story, or at least the sort of take on the character right there. You know, he's sort of like, he's dreamy. He is a little bit of like a misfit in this society. He is misinterpreted. He is uh, chastised, but he clearly like charms Gina. Like they essentially form a relationship based on like that and not much else. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it just kind of like fast tracks that relationship. Maybe there are things happening off screen. It's a good scene in that it shows, I think, the two ways people would respond to someone like Basquiat. Like the the diner owner is just like, what is wrong with this like weird, you know, guy that's like wandered into my diner? Get him out immediately. Like, he's just so off-putting to me. But Gina is immediately, I think, as we all are agreeing, is like, oh, this guy's really hot and interesting. Like, I want to go flirt with him. And you're like, yeah, "Yeah, that's why he was such a polarizing figure. Because either you find his behavior and his demeanor, like, incredibly charming, or you find it incredibly off-putting. And that sort of is what he's, he's hopping between. And then I think once he gets famous... And maybe people are less inclined to <laughs> tell him to his face when they find him off-putting. He's really struggling with, like, you know, which one of these – who's in my life genuinely versus who's in my life because they're trying to, like, get something from me. And even, like, with the fame and the, the, the attention, I'm still, like, constantly disrespected. Like, he goes to the deli with Andy Warhol – and he's trying to like buy caviar mm-hmm. and the the butcher or deli person <laughs> um is like you know doubting that he has the money is just like kind of questioning like you know like him being there and the whole thing um and this is like at the height of his uh career and then even towards the end when after Warhol's death and he's like kind of wandering the streets like there are these uh two uh, uh people like trying to I guess, like, take one of his murals off the street. I didn't quite understand what they were doing. I think Uh, there was this idea that after he got famous, all this sort of graffiti tagging he had done that had just sort of been anonymous graffiti tagging, then it was, like, worth thousands of dollars. So people were going around trying to find the old... I think that's what was the implication there. And then he was like, I'm uh, 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 Samu. I'm the person that... uh, Or Samo, Samo. I'm I'm the person that... um, did it you know he went to sign it so it was worth more they didn't believe him they just like beat him up it's just like so sad yeah Yeah. i was actually well i don't know i'll be curious to hear what you both think about this i was like in a way kind of impressed with this movie's ability to highlight little examples of racism i don't know if this is Mm. me giving a 1996 movie too much credit for being like oh this feels like something people didn't put into movies until recently but that caviar scene really struck me as well he go he literally he borrows three thousand dollars from andy warhol to buy the caviar like no problem very chill and then when he goes to hand the guy like 20 bucks to buy the rest of the thing the guy's checking his money to see if it's like real money or counterfeit money and it's just like Mm -hmm. such a stark thing to put into this movie and in a way i was like well i'm glad the movie didn't like brush over that element which i could i guess see a white director doing 
But then I don't know if that's me giving too much credit to a movie for doing like what is essentially just the bare minimum, you know, with depicting these little things. No, I don't know. I mean, honestly, I I think those moments were successful. You know, him in the restaurant later mm-hmm. and there's that table of like white businessmen that are like obviously like sort of mocking him for being in the same restaurant as, mm-hmm. as them. And then he like buys their meal. Um you know, it's it's uh th- th- these are very like sort of stereotypical moments mm-hmm. of like race interaction, you know, like whether or not these things actually happen this way. Like these are examples that people know about, like things that happen yeah. to black people. Mm-hmm. Um, he has trouble hailing a cab at one point. Right, right. Now Gina ends up calling the cab. Like that's a classic <laughs> scene that we see in a lot of movies. I don't know how successful it is because I keep coming back to it being white people that made the movie, mm-hmm. you know? And I don't know what his experience was. I know that, you know, he was always like kind of an outcast, you know, and sort of like used for his work. Like even now, you know, he's in the news right now because um, Beyonce and Jay-Z are using yeah. his piece for their uh, advertising interesting yeah wasn't there something about now i wish i had looked into this more before saying this but isn't there something about like tiffany's the company tiffany's had like had a painting of his that they'd had for a really long time and like hadn't told the world about is it sounding familiar to anyone i think i think it was something like that yeah yeah and him just being this like really like anti-capitalist sort of artist and like now you know i think even vans has or maybe it's a doc martens somebody has like a bosquia line of like really? shoes and like shirts, like with his painting on as like a design, I'm always just like, like it's so cringe to me. I don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Maybe That's wild. Just, just like you know, how many people buy that don't even know anything about like what they're wearing. They just think it's like cool, a cool design. Like, would he care? Maybe not. But I don't know. Yeah, totally, totally speculative. I mean, like this is you know, he only got as far as the world 33 years ago. Like, right. could he could, to conjecture what he would have thought about the way that like capitalist consumerism exists now the like <laughs> forms it's taken yeah. uh crazy i mean it is it is like so let's see um i did pull this little stat about it a sotheby's auction in may 2017 untitled the 1982 painting by basquiat depicting a black skull with red and yellow rivulets sold for 110.5 million becoming one of the most expensive paintings ever purchased it also set a new record high for an american artist at auction wow so yeah it's like his work is like incredibly high value and yet it feels like it probably for that like draws the most i mean all modern art and especially all pop art i mean andy warhol like clearly was turning this idea of art like on its head and like and you know what what's the name of the is it man ray the guy who signed a urinal you know like it, it just was like uh duchamp duchamp okay great Who's Man Ray? Maybe someone else. Uh, there's our AP art history scholar <laughs> over here. It feels like all of that is always going to be like meaningful to some people and from other people drawing this like, why why do we call this crap art? And like that is always going to come down like the hardest on the like extremely few black artists who are able to, oh, to yeah. sort of like enter that world and are always going to be seen by some people as like intruders. But it is like at the same time as they say, like it's the it's the it's the highest value ever paid for a piece of like american artists at auction which i don't know it's like there's there's just so much to unpack there and i do feel like Mm. one of the things this movie i think gets right and you know arguably like maybe this is the movie that schnabel especially wanted to make because he felt like he identified with it is it's like an art world movie Mm -hmm. um you know it's a movie about the way in which like art 
the art world is kind of this like cannibalistic hungry machine that just like <laughs> chomps up artists and their work there was this little moment and i watched an interview this is that same interview with jeffrey wright from 1996 in which the um the interviewer says do you have any of his art she first asked, like, I wasn't familiar with Basquiat. Were you familiar? He goes, yeah, yeah, I'd seen some of his work. I found it very powerful, but obviously now I know a lot more. Wright also spent, like, six months painting leading up to doing the film. He just, like, worked with Schnabel and, like, did painting. He says, no, I don't have any of his art. Some of the producers of the film do. And then you feel him, like, navigate whether he wants to say any more. Yeah. And there's this kind of, like, charged moment. And she goes... I think after that, he goes like, yeah, most of it is in museums or galleries. Some of it is in Swiss chateaus or it's out in the Hamptons. But no, I don't have any of it. <laughs> so, yeah, it's a it's a a crazy thing. And I, I'm curious about like, what do y'all what do y'all think about the art? Have y'all looked at any any Basquiat art since watching the movie or in preparation for it? I think yeah. I was familiar with it, but you must have, I don't know, covered it in. Yeah, we covered a, a bit of it. Yeah, and I, I've always been a fan. Um, I love it. You know, I, I think there's something to neo-expressionist art about seeing it in person. Uh-huh. Mm. I think um, a lot of it is about just, like, the emotion behind the brushstrokes and sort of, like, the size of it and the scale of the art. So, like, you know, I've seen a lot of pictures of it in books and online, and I don't think that quite conveys maybe the enormity of some of these pieces. Um, you know, like like everyone makes fun of, uh, 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 oh no, I just lost his name. <laughs> no, uh, splatter paint guy. Um, Pollock. Jackson Pollock, Pollock, thank you, fuck. Yeah. Uh, everyone makes fun of Pollock, but you know, if you see one of those pieces, it's like kind of moving in a weird way. Mm-hmm. It's just like sort of pure expression. And Basquiat was similar where it's like, you know, it looks like graffiti, if you're sort of just like looking at a picture of it, but up close, you like sort of see like some of the method and the madness to it. Uh-huh. Um, no, I love it. I I don't love kind of seeing it as we were talking about, like commercially, I think it sort of cheapens it. You know, mm-hmm. I think the same thing of Warhol pieces too. Whenever I see someone with like a Andy Warhol soup can t-shirt, I'm just sort of like, this is now a commentary of a commentary, right? You have now bought <laughs> gone back of merchandise of his mockery of merchandising. But, you know, <laughs> what yeah. are you going to do? I'm not sure. I wonder if, I'm not sure if I've ever seen Basquiat art in person. There's not a ton of it in museums. Yeah. Uh, that, that's kind of the thing is like a lot of it was sold to rich white people. Mm-hmm, and a lot yeah. Of it still I was just reading a little spaces. A little more about that Tiffany's thing I brought up. Apparently that it's so there's a there's it's a. It's an ad for Tiffany's that features Jay-Z and Beyonce. And in the mm. back is a big painting of Basquiat's that had been in a private collection. It had never been seen publicly. And it was purchased mm. by Tiffany's because the blue in the painting matches like the Tiffany's blue. Right. Oh and so God. I think the controversy was this is a painting no one had, had not been accessible to people. The first time they're seeing it is in an ad for Tiffany's. So <laughs> yeah. like, you yeah. know, maybe this art, kind of art should be put in a museum ideally a free museum where it is accessible to everyone like you're saying i actually thought that was such an interesting point jules that i it I genuinely had not occurred to me that like seeing art in person is different than seeing it in a book <laughs> it i don't is. know I why mean, don't i hadn't quite put it. that together but i think that's such an i don't know i'm very much an art dummy like i really don't mm. i don't know i don't even quite know how to like appreciate it but i think that that's a really interesting point that seeing it the scale of it and I guess the texture of it in person is such a different experience. It is. And you you don't really need to know because I'm not by any means an art critic. I'm like, um, I 
took an art minor in college. I had to drop it because I was so bad. <laughs> I was, like laughed out of the art department. But um, I just, you know, we have the Art Institute in Chicago and it's honestly the best art museum mm-hmm. in the country. And like, you know, one of the best in the world. And you see some of these pieces that you've like, you know, always known about, you know, like uh, Sunday afternoon on the mm-hmm. island, blah, 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 um, yeah. George Sorrell. You like see it and you're like, oh, this painting is fucking massive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, all the things that people are talking about with pointillism, how long, you know, doing all those little dots seems so much more interesting when you look at how big the piece is, right? Or yeah. if you uh, Lichtenstein, a contemporary of, of um, the people we're talking about, Warhol and all those, you go, this is none our institute this is over in uh the tate modern um but you see the wham like that big exploding plane oh yeah you know and just like the sheer scale of that and you know you're, you're then you're thinking about like oh you know his whole thing was like blowing up these comic book uh uh panels and like you seeing like that detail kind of changes the way you look at the art from from then on so there's something to say, and, and you know, the problem is, is it's not accessible, you know, mm-hmm. and a museum is one thing, but even like museums in uh United States, most of them, you got to pay for entry yeah. and in Europe, yeah. you can go to most of the museums for free, but there's such a barrier to access to some of these like, you know, pivotal moments in history are reflected in these art um, pieces and it's impossible to see it for some people. And I think similar to what you're saying about the Warhol, like the irony of he was critiquing capitalism. Now we'll put it on a shirt that we can sell to you. The fact that Basquiat started as like a street artist, which is literally the most accessible form of art you could do. Like anyone walking down the street can see it. And then once he gets, you know, named as someone important, then his art becomes like almost impossible to see. Like what an ironic twist that is. And in the film, you even see like kind of how his pieces are just like flying away from him in a Mm -hmm. way that he's not even aware of. Like people are making deals and sales sort of around him. Like he's not even like out here like trying to sell these paintings, really just wants to make them. I do like that scene where he's sort of like middle of the movie and he, there's been a montage that I think is pretty sweet where he's like painting this big canvas on the floor and it's kind of developing piece by piece and then some other paintings will come in and then and that that does seem to be true to part of his method is that he wouldn't just like sit on one thing and just like crunch it away and then be like okay done he'd like some of them he'd say i don't know if it's done yet uh and he'd go work on something else nearby and then he'd have an idea and then he'd come add something Mm. um but then there's a scene where like so in comes the dealer who i think was a real person anina something and she's got these two people and uh, she says uh she says um this is the true voice of the gutter (sighs) Oh, yeah. And, yes, uh, yes, 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 yes. And then, yeah. While he's like, standing there. While literally, like, in front of Basquiat. Almost yes. as if he's not there. Like, as if she's in a museum. Like <laughs> Exactly. And, yes, and she's selling pieces that he's like, those aren't done. And they're like, you know what? We'll take it. And he yeah. goes, uh, uh. And I like that at the same time, like, in comes, like, one of his, like, graffiti artist friends and just says, yeah, JM, what does it mean? <laughs> <laughs> That's another lovely scene. Yeah. <laughs> I also love the scene where it's him and... Um, Warhol, who I almost just called Bowie, because I guess they're just the same person now. <laughs> Him and Warhol, they're like working on a big canvas together. That's these two like Pegasus horses, mm. and he just kind of like paints over some of it. And Warhol's like, "Oh, you probably shouldn't have done that, but whatever." That was my and then Warhol part. will do some, and Basquiat, and they're just kind of like, "What are we doing? Like, this is weird. <laughs> we don't really know." Yeah. <laughs> the idea that like you know we hail these people as masters. 
And not that they aren't, but that in making it, there was some degree of like, eh, what are we doing here? Yeah. Well, I mean, that's like, I think the disconnect between looking at art and making art, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, there, there's so, you know, I think about when I act, right? Which is, you know, a different process than painting. But I am not hyper aware of everything I do on stage you know i become like i I sort of become a passenger almost to it right where Mm -hmm. i'm like course correcting kind of what i'm doing but like when people ask me before like oh so so what was going on in that moment there it's very hard for me to be like ah fuck you know i was just doing it (laughs) yeah Yeah. maybe that's why i'm a crap actor but (laughs) it's sort of like uh, the same thing when you talk about like art, like what is the meaning behind well, with, with Christopher Walken behind the fleas and the parasites mean? and things yeah. like that. It's just like I painted it because I wanted to paint it, you know. Yeah. When I used to direct, I would always – sometimes an actor would just do something that I really liked, like usually like a physical thing. And mm-hmm. I would be torn between wanting to give them like a note. You give notes like, you know, good and bad notes. And I'd want to like compliment them on it. But then I would right. be worried that in pointing it out, it would like make them not do it as organically or, you know what oh, I mean? Make them do it very yeah. self-consciously. But then I was like, what if I don't point it out and they like don't do it in the next performance? And I really <laughs> like it. Like they're really, it's really a balance of like how much is, how much do you want to, you know, point something yeah. out to someone versus just let it happen. Yeah. And it's like, we do that with artists. We do it with actors. We do it with we do it with athletes where it's like, tell me what was going through your mind when you like ran that like crazy uh, like pick six return. It's like then they have to like pretend like there was this cognitive process that like their strategy was evolving. It's like I just I just played football as, as well as I can. Yeah, but we're know. just like, yeah, it's all over. We're like looking for these like uh, tell me what everything tell me how every decision came up. And it's like these are things that are based on based on instinct Mm -hmm. it is it is it's so instinctual and you know i think i i think jeffrey wright does a dope job of capturing that because i think he's a very instinctual actor well this is one of the things that like really blew my mind watching this movie because i'm used to jeffrey wright in mumbling 50 something scientist nerd mode (laughs) to go back and watch this like vital young hot (laughs) you know not not nerdy role like i would not call basquiat a nerd (laughs) he does not fit that archetype this was like i don't know like mind-boggling and how different it was than the jeffrey wright that i knew and i think one thing that ned you and i have talked about a lot on this podcast is sometimes you'll see an actor in in one thing and if they give a very naturalistic performance i'm always like oh i wonder if they're just playing themselves on screen or if they're doing a performance if this Mm -hmm. was the first and only thing i'd seen of jeffrey wright i would think oh he's just playing himself that must be what he's like in real life Mm. because it is naturalistic to the point where i'm like i can't imagine someone like doing that as a choice like it feels so that he's just living in it you know it does not feel like acting in the way that the big oscar you know monologue acting is like at all it's just so lived in and it was really fun to take this journey of going from knowing present day jeffrey wright to like flashback to this young although not even that young you know like, he's playing a 19-year-old yeah. very convincingly, but he was in his 30s. Like, he was not yeah, this age, complete yeah. young hotshot right out of acting school or anything. Like, he – a lot of this is really, you know, active performance choices on his part. I love that you say lived in, too, because I think that is a quality to Jeffrey Wright's performance in all of his characters, is that they feel like they have history and they're full of behaviors, you know, like like watching uh, Basquiat really like solidified that for me as, as for for me like watching him as an actor, 
Like in Westworld, he's got these ticks too. They're small compared to like what he does in this film, but he's always like kind of like cleaning the glasses mm-hmm. or something like that, or always like kind of like squinting at things. Like he's an actor that like fills everything he does with like behavior and like little ticks and moments. Um, and it's so small that it almost like just blends into like, well, I guess that's just Jeffrey Wright. Mm-hmm. But you know, yeah. you look at this film, you look at him in Boardwalk Empire, which I think is like another kind of flavor of him. And mm-hmm. then you look at him in like your Westworld, um, Hunger Games kind of type, and you see like three very different actors. It's cool. It's very yeah, cool. <laughs> yeah, it's very cool. I guess that he, I, 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 it is one of the things where I wonder, like, you know, how much did people know what to do with him in this movie? He, I suppose, particularly for New York, and I wonder, I wonder if he's from. Let's see, he's, he's from he's from DC. DC. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, he attended Amherst College, and he's wearing a what? Who is Amherst, or what is Amherst T-shirt in this? Maybe it means oh. nothing. But he, <laughs> two years earlier than this, he would have been in Angels in America on Broadway. He did it for a year and a yeah. half, which you and wanted he, Tony for exactly. So, so you know, Tony's as always. You know, they make the mistake of assuming that like everyone in the world cares about and knows about what's going on in New York, but to a certain extent, they do have a a a large profile. So to certain community of New York interested or New York residing, you know, presumably like upper class theater going people, he would have he would have been known and to people in the artist community for his his role in Angels in America, which he would go on to, you know, reprise, I think, like 10 years after that or nine years after that on TV. Right. He talks about with this film with Basquiat that he Basically, like he did Angels in America for a year and a half, which, you know, I think is plenty of time to do a play. And then he, you know, put in his notice. And immediately after that, someone got in touch uh, about the film Basquiat. And they asked him to read for Benny, for Benicio del Toro's character. And he was like, oh, but I want to play Basquiat. So he just read it as he would do Jean-Michel Basquiat. He just did his like Basquiat like mannerisms in his Benny audition. And I don't think they called him in to read for Basquiat. I think they just called him and said, like, we want you to do the movie. At least that's how he tells it. Um, that's cool. And uh, yeah, that was that was him. He was in he was in then. Um, and as yeah, as we say, he spent time painting with the uh, Schnabel. He like watched these interview videos. He obviously never knew the artist himself. But um, oh, I meant to say this before. None of actual Basquiat's actual art is in this. We should probably point that out. That they, I don't think they could get the rights to use it. So they had um, Schnabel did all the art that's in the movie, sort of in the style of Basquiat. I don't know, just to throw that element yeah, into the conversation. I guess well, that makes sense, but I never thought about it. Yeah. I think it's interesting because I didn't look at. I have a general familiarity with his style, mm-hmm. but I wouldn't say I could have like visually immediately called to mind any of his specific like paintings or, or drawings besides like you know sort of same iconography and i looked at it after watching the film and i was immediately like oh it's better mm-hmm. you know it's it's i can't really put my finger on why but <laughs> when you look at the actual basquiat paintings as compared to the like work in the style of basquiat that appears in the film i mean i think the stuff in the film is good but you see mm-hmm. the stuff that he actually did and you're like oh that's yeah, that's just that's just better. Mm. It's there's something about the way he draws people that's just like so expressive 
Maybe that goes back to the idea of like, oh, Pollock, whatever, anybody could do that. But it's like, can you? Yeah, <laughs> anyone can do that. But like, oh, someone tried and like, is Actually, it as good? No. Yeah, maybe not. Maybe not. <laughs> One thing I've been having fun with, I feel like Ned on our podcast, we're like, we talk about these actors and their work, but we also kind of talk about just like what their personalities are like. Mm, and totally. we've had like a real, you know, like we had Christian Bale's very sort of like method acty, but also weird and self-deprecating and like doesn't like interviews and... <laughs> Emily Blunt, I remember you calling her polished, and I st- I'm like, that is the perfect word to describe Emily Blunt, like just <laughs> yeah, the most polished, polished, you know, and then Jamie Lee Curtis, my mom told me that she really laughed when I called her a quote unquote artsy boomer, and that, that is the <laughs> description of Jamie Lee Curtis, and then James That's Dean really was good. like the real weird little, you know, artsy New York type, and Jeffrey Wright, in the interviews I've seen, at least the present day interviews, he just has like playwriting teacher energy. Like, he's oh, yeah. so thoughtful and academic in the way he speaks, but also really, like, funny and humble and personable. And like, exactly that story of, like, I-, I watched the same interview where he was like, oh, I was called in for Benny. And in the interview, it's a little like, come on, guys, like, what are you thinking? Obviously, I shouldn't be called in for Benny, so I'll just read it, you know, this way. And he's very polite about it. It's like he is not openly snarky, yeah. but he is that that real, I don't know, just like a little bit. Not schlubby, but I don't know. Just that like professorial attitude. I really like. I can put that. I think it was one of those Vanity Fair um, videos where he talks about, you know, his his important roles. I can put that on our Twitter account. But like, just what a fun guy. And in the background of it, there's this fish tank with two turtles in turtles. it. Turtles. <laughs> Did you see that? Oh, yes. what? I need to watch this. There's so, these like two yeah. turtles swimming around in, behind him. It's just oh. funny. It's this series that Vanity Fair does where they have an actor like break down their iconic roles. So it's kind of like a 20 minute. They just talk like, they just say like a one minute soundbite about their most famous roles. And the Jamie Lee Curtis one we referenced on basically every single episode of that series. And it's one of those ones that was like professionally produced in 2018 or 2019. So she's in the Vanity Fair studio in the kind of like clean infinity white background with her like makeup and hair. And Jeffrey Wrights is from 2020 in anticipation of No Time to Die. So you know it's on Zoom. Right. Just in his office with his like, like, yeah, just his, you know, the, the window that's clearly in front of him is like totally reflected in his glasses. There's no like makeup or lighting artist there. And yeah, there's just his turtles like swimming around. Swimming around as he's like talking that. about, oh, I'm preparing for this role. I did, you know, this method. He's like, he's like actor dad. That's great. Yes. Yeah, he's, got, he's got some dad energy. And it, Big it's dad energy. Because it, it feels like we don't, we don't have like a very young period for him in the way that some of our other actors have Mm. like a late teens early 20s like phase almost all of them actually almost everybody we we've covered so far i think started young right uh, yeah, I think he's someone who uh, who didn't really get interested in co- in acting until he was in college. Because I actually know, let's wait, I can pull up the bio. But but our friend, we have a friend, Sammy Z, whose whose mom actually I think knows Jeffrey Wright because they did this like two. What a reveal, Ned! I just had no children's fact. theater. <laughs> I don't know. I, I wonder. So we could have like, got him, is what you're we, saying. We might. <laughs> Jeffrey, we might could have got pod. him. <laughs> yeah, but it was just say she knew him in college from doing this like touring, this touring children's theater thing, and speaks very highly of him. So it seems like he is. He's. He's not one of those people who's like an asshole masquerading behind nice public mm. appearances. He seems to be a genuinely nice guy. But do you think that's the theater background? Because mm. I, I, I wonder sometimes actors that start in theater and then transition to film are just like more chill people 
that's what it seems like sometimes to me. And people that like, like go straight to your like Hollywood actors are usually like behind the scenes assholes. I find that in theater, it is harder to make it if you're a huge prick. Yeah, yeah, I agree. You really need to work the network, which means, I mean, a few people can do it by just being like hot shit, meteorically, amazingly good actors, and then they can get away with being assholes. But generally, I think you kind of have to be like down with the group or else you can't. Nud was talking about me a little bit there at the beginning. (laughs) (laughs) I thought I wouldn't notice. Some people like Jules who are assholes, but so unbelievably good, who bully the nerds. (laughs) But who are just so unbelievably good they can get away with it. But most people can't be uh, as can't be bullies like Jules because yeah, they just sorry. don't have they don't have the raw power that Jules has. I was born this no, way. This is this is this is a this is a goof. Jules is a sweet pea. I also think getting famous later in life tends to make you chiller. I think it's those people mm. who get famous in their early twenties, you know, versus versus Jeffrey Wright's doing this movie in, when he's about thirty. But even this, it's yeah. not like this movie then made him an immediate household name. I don't even think today right. he's a really a, a full household name. Like most people probably recognize him, but certainly mm-hmm. not compared to a Christian Bale or an Emily Blunt. Yeah, yeah. He's one of those like, oh, that's the guy from... Uh- right. <laughs> exactly. He's that, guy. He's, that, he's, guy, he's that guy. I feel like that maybe also made him a little bit chiller. Um, but Jules, your theater question I think is a good one because I also think Jeffrey Wright is really our first like actor we've covered that comes from theater like james dean had sort of studied theater and he did a broadway play but he like quit the broadway play after you know like four performances or whatever we talked about because of his his famously mercurial temperament so not the classic you know i'm gonna go to work eight shows a week you know put in my work thing um versus jeffrey wright i don't know if he full-on went to theater school but certainly did a lot of theater work before transitioning into film and i think you're totally right jules that that gives you a different just gives you more of like pragmatism, I think. Like if you just mm. having to do a bunch of shows in a row, you cannot be as self-indulgent as if you are this actor on set who knows you only need one or two takes and you can sort of, <laughs> you know, get away with all this bad behavior because of that. Yeah. Yeah, you have to get up and go to work with these people. <laughs> right, yeah, right. And that too. Yeah. <laughs> Jeffrey Wright just seems so much more thoughtful and practical and like, I don't know, just such a good mix of like he can sort of intellectualize what he's doing but then also does he doesn't come across pretentious at all he comes across so just like warm and nice and like yeah you just want him to be your nice artsy dad or whatever <laughs> or maybe your artsy lover whatever whatever artsy your daddy <laughs> professor yeah. daddy Combine right the two. <laughs> professor daddy professor daddy right <laughs> oh my god we cannot have a whole podcast where we just call him professor daddy right that's too professor much for daddy me to right. handle <laughs> okay well, i'll just i'll just kind of uh it'll just sort of like be the subtext of everything yeah seen. know that it's there <laughs> yeah any other sort of standout scenes or performances in the movie that we want to we want to shout out i might have been like just super horny for benicio del toro <laughs> but and this scene is in fact problematic but when he kisses Gina on the stairwell, oh, I was like, it's hot. You oh know what's actually God. more hot than the kiss? It's when he does mm. this weird, he kind of just comes down, yeah. kisses his best friend's girlfriend. She's yeah. not into it. Then he turns around, goes back up the stairs and comes back down as if the kiss didn't yeah. happen. And he just <laughs> yes. goes, can I kiss you? It's like he just does a, a second take, but like in real life. And it's, it's so, so funny incredibly and like hot. confident. <laughs> yeah, it's so yeah. incredibly hot. I yeah. just had to talk about that one scene because I was like, oh my God. Totally. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, he's uh, yeah, Benicio del Toro is amazing, and kind of one of my only regrets about the uh, Sicario podcast we did is that I don't feel like I talked enough about how awesome I think Benicio del Toro is. I think he's mm. stellar. He yeah, kills. he kills. Maybe someday he'll have his day in the role calling sun. But I yeah. feel like I tease that with everybody. We'll see. <laughs> we'll we'll see be doing this podcast happens. for decades now. I mean, yeah, one maybe. thing in terms of the meta narrative of our podcast, this movie I think has the most actors who have been featured in other role calling films like we had david bowie in the mm-hmm. prestige willem dafoe mm-hmm. in american psycho uh oh, yeah. gary oldman in batman begins <laughs> um who else and benicio del toro in sicario i was like oh all of our friends are back together oh, oh yeah, and dennis hopper and giant i was like going all oh, the yeah. way back dennis to hopper. the you know the 1950s like it really yeah. felt like we were we were you know bringing everyone together um yeah. i here's a little as I want to do. Sometimes I just throw a little hot take bomb at the end of an episode. I'm not do actually it. sure I fully love the David Bowie performance in this movie. Mm. Really? I think the genius of casting Bowie as Warhol carries it far. Like, that's mm. just such a great concept. I found the performance a little bit like a bad caricature, I would say. Have you seen videos of Bowie? Or no, of, of, of Warhol? Warhol? I was watching a little bit to try to see if maybe i was just <laughs> if i was I, underestimating how weird warhol was i feel like it's not bad personally i don't i don't know if it's a bad impression but it feels like an impression not a performance i buy that mm-hmm. i buy that for sure i mean i don't know a lot about warhol which is wild because there's so much mm-hmm. information out there to be at i just i think i just don't care about warhol that yeah. much but um I thought it was fun. You know, the best scene I think that he was in was the first when uh, uh, Basquiat goes into the restaurant and is trying to sell him those little paintings, Mm -hmm. right? And he's there with that uh, big time art producer man, whoever the fuck that was. And, you know, he's just like showing him all these little things and like Andy Warhol's just making these like little quips and was like trying to like play the the guy that he's having dinner with into paying for these things. Oh, I thought I that was like know, a really Bruno. These <laughs> are pretty good. I just thought it was like a really smart, cute scene. Mm-hmm. But there are some times where I'm just sort of like, you know, it's it's just like one of those roles where there's not like a lot of substance there. So you're just sort of just being big Andy Warhol, you know. Like there weren't a lot of like small intimate scenes in the movie for for him and uh, Busquet to have. Maybe it's the accent too. Maybe Bowie's kind of struggling with the, I don't oh, know, sure. the American sure. accent of it all. I, I do like... whatever voice you just did, Ned was very accurate to the <laughs> Bowie as Warhol, but I don't know if that's fully accurate to Warhol as Warhol. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I, I haven't. It, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I thought Gary Oldman was having some accent troubles, but I don't know what he was supposed to be in this. Maybe he's supposed to be Swedish or something. I don't know. Whatever. I didn't understand that character. I didn't know what was happening no. in that scene. He's well, and then that, yeah, it is. I do think. It's a hard character to understand until you learn, oh, this is the stand-in for the director. And then all of a sudden right. you're like, oh, okay, that's why he got so much screen time. Including the point <laughs> to the point where the, I think the parents, Gary Oldman's parents in the movie and his daughter are played by the director's real-life parents and real-life daughter. Yeah. Oh, that tracks. Doesn't it? Okay. No. Okay. So, so peculiar. 
The character of Rene Ricard is a really interesting one. Mm. Oh, yeah. So he's a real essay. In fact, I read some of his essay, The Radiant Child, which is one of the ones that was published in 81 and is sort of one of his early instances of championing Basquiat. I find it really interesting because that actor, Michael Wincott, in pretty much every other movie I've ever seen him in, just plays like a muttery, raspy-voiced, slow, evil person in like The Count of Monte Cristo and Treasure Planet and The Crow. Kind of is always playing the exact same villain. And to see him get to play this larger-than-life, bursting, with energy art critic is interesting i think it is a little bit questionable okay i'm gonna say something i don't know exactly for sure but i think straight actor playing queer character with like a little bit it's hard to tell how much like stereotypical mannerism is put into there and how true to life that is because that's someone i don't have any footage of he also kind of has like some of the weirdest race politics shit in the movie Mm mm-hmm he is like he says some wild things. Some wild some, things come out of his some mouth. Wild things. He definitely has these like <laughs> oh, like a few like weird n word moments and uh, yeah. like he projects the sense that he's he has anointed himself like a good white person who's like quote unquote down with black people and can speak to them as if he is a black person. Essentially, uh-huh. is the way the Renee character is presenting himself. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Something that just kind of doesn't really fly in mainstream movies anymore in the way that it might have done in 1996. But I'm Um, not sure the movie agrees with him. I actually kind of like, I actually really liked that character and I really liked that performance. And I don't Uh know if it, I think he feels that way about himself. I don't know if the movie's necessarily like, because I don't know if Basquiat, I feel like if anything, that was more of an example of one of, of the movie sort of identifying microaggression that Basquiat had to face because it was a moment you yeah. do get Basquiat's reaction being like mm, what I don't know yeah. about that man right 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 yeah yeah but and then like him being like thrown out of the restaurant mm-hmm. um, yeah yeah definitely like a character that is rejected by this community yeah yeah I found that character and that performance actually messier than I think a lot of the other supporting characters were kind of allowed to be and I mm-hmm. kind of liked that like I yeah. I don't know I really that was probably my second favorite performance in the film I mean I agree it's always like there is always the question of how much you're leaning into the stereotype of it all but I don't know it felt of a piece with the world to me yeah yeah, I, I think the character made sense. And, like, I, I do love that scene at dinner when he's just freaking the fuck out. Mm-hmm. And then that dude is on the table singing for some reason. Yeah, and yeah what I the fuck is like, going on? I, <laughs> that was, even, I don't as know the person, even as the person who can watch, you know, I've watched my fair share of arty films. Even I was like, what's happening? We don't need to go this arty in this moment. Like, oh, I we don't it. need someone. <laughs> we loved it. But it was insane. Strange. It was insane, but I loved it. That was like moment two where I was like, oh, I am watching a film. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that's a good, his like breakdown scene in the, in the like facing up. There's like, you kind of see like two art worlds and it's like, oh, you're in the lower status of mm-hmm. the two art worlds and you're never going to yeah. make it up to this, like a table that's literally higher up. Definitely like, like Warhol and they're like having like an inane conversation about where somewhere is yes. like over this <laughs> argument. So there's yes. that happening. There's the dude singing and then he's like having a full meltdown. It's just like, yeah. what is going yeah. on? Yeah. That thing about, I like that satire of like up there in the corner in this like special secret place at like the high elevated table are like the most beautiful exotic like artists and like what could they be talking about at their table and they're like saddle river is in new jersey saddle river is in new york saddle river is in new jersey saddle river is in new york and it's like oh they're just it's it's as stupid as anything else it felt like a play like it was like this is wild yeah uh, I also love, uh, like, uh, I love a supportive Defoe character. Like, so Willem Defoe plays this electrician who's like, 
ah, you're just learning in your 20s. It's great. I'm glad I never got recognition. I'm in my 40s. I'm just starting to find myself. Character who, like, almost has no business being in this movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and, like, wh- like just getting him, like, you know, getting Parker Posey to play this gallery owner who, I guess she has a function, but it's, like, so small. It's just, like, I don't know what all these things do. I don't know how well they all fit together. But as you kind of said at the beginning, Caroline, like, a, a lot of the pieces really work for me. Mm-hmm. I'd say far from a perfect film, but definitely a lot to to lean into. Yeah, but I also think it leaves a lot of room for like, I would love to see a, another Basquiat biopic one day and maybe one that is a little more interested in its central figure than perhaps this movie is at its worst. Like, I think that I think this movie has some interesting things to say about Basquiat, but like I could see a movie doing this a lot better and I would be yeah interested yeah. to see that. Maybe we can have Wright play like, I don't know. His dad or something, you know what I mean? As a little symbolic passing <laughs> uh, of the torch to wh- whatever young actor we cast. And it it would be interesting. Like, I don't know this about Basquiat's biography, but I certainly have to assume that throughout his life, he continued to have interactions with and relationships with people who weren't white people. And none of those are on display in this film. Because yeah. this yeah. is really, it's really like, it's about, you know, this iconic black artist, but... He really, as far as I can tell, applying a sort of a Bechdel-esque moment mm-hmm. or metric to it, kind of only has one conversation with another black character. No, mm-hmm. well, he talks to his mom and he talks to the limo driver, Shenge. But those are both like, those two scenes total less than two minutes. Right. And neither and, of those uh, characters come back. No. Right. Well, we see like Shenge in the background, like helping him do things, which, mm-hmm. you know, that, that person is real. And did like help oh, him work on pieces, yeah. Oh, so cool. it feels more like a cameo than an actual like, mm-hmm. you know, character that had yeah. to be like. Yeah. Although again, that would have been very cool. Like that sounds like a relationship that I want this movie to be about. You know. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It was very much centered in that like white art sphere and didn't really branch out from there because I mm-hmm. guess that's what the director was also in. You know. And yeah. didn't maybe know too much about like his rap album that he made, right. which I think is wild, and I would have loved to see. Yeah, <laughs> you know? all the yeah, it's all the things that get skipped over in that yeah. <laughs> time jump that they're like listing off. Here's all the other interesting things you did that we're not going to show in this movie. Yeah, yeah like some of them, I was like, oh, I would have loved to see that. Like, you know, maybe that's not what the movie is about. It was really like hinged, I think, on this relationship with him and Warhol, and probably should have been more so, like you were saying earlier, Caroline um than it was yeah at least it would have made me know when we were doing the sort of like three minute long like footage of warhol sad cry memorial scene like why we were so focused on that Mm -hmm. right yeah or maybe do like three generations do like warhol basquiat and then basquiat's the sort of assistant that he lifts out Mm -hmm. you know or something yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. Whatever. Well, Technically, it's not my job as a critic to rewrite the film, but I sure. sometimes do feel a slight impulse to. <laughs> sometimes you got to do it. When they're pissing on that canvas, I think it's very funny. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's like, That's I right. hate cleaning my brushes, too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Wright really has some, he has some really great, like, mumbled one-liners in this that are just yeah. so funny. Yeah, they, yeah, they give, as you said, Caroline, a sense of Basquiat's, like, just like deep cleverness and that also just vibes with jeffrey wright who it's a good it's a good pairing since he's someone else who just seems to be like kind of in an understated way like extremely clever i'm mainly just glad we i like got a chance to see this film and this like side of jeffrey wright like i don't think i would have ever sought this movie out if we weren't covering it on this podcast and i am glad i did if only if if only to like give a deeper appreciation to the sort of breadth of what wright can do yeah 
Yeah, I agree. Totally. I probably would never watch this movie. And, you know, his hotness. <laughs> so hot. Oh, my God. <laughs> Wild. So after doing Basquiat, he goes a few years sort of like quietly in terms of big screen success. All these things that are going to make him, as we said, like maybe not even really a household name, but closer to it. Those are still like years away. In the next few years, he plays a lead in one of the lesser known Ang Lee films called Ride with the Devil, which is a film that probably hasn't stuck to the mainstream since most of its protagonists are Confederate sympathizers. Uh, although it's a movie that, yeah, it's a movie that Jeffrey Wright, he still speaks fondly about. I mean, he, he talks about it being very, so it's angly. So he's, he basically says like, he, he says it's the, uh, it's, it's a film about the civil war, but you know, in the de Tocqueville sense approached by angly an outsider. And I'm like, oh yeah. In the de Tocqueville sense. Yeah. <laughs> duh. See, this is the professor, <laughs> professor daddy Wright coming through. Damn yes. Professor. So, so uh, because he says it's a, you know, it's a personal film. It's about individual relationships. You know, I think he, he thinks it's an interesting one, but it hasn't really like, that's not one that I had heard about until I started looking into Debbie and Jeffrey Wright. So, mm. um, the next big project that really starts to make his face a recognizable one, Jeffrey Wright's face, at least to action fans, is the film we're going to be discussing in two weeks. It's about the cat that won't cop out when there's danger about. <laughs> Jesus. Shaft. Shaft. Sorry. I just absolutely hate the way you said that. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't, you know, I couldn't commit to Isaac Hayes' voice. I just. I know I feel it's like for the best, honestly, but. <laughs> Oh, you get to see your friend Christian Bale again, though. I That's know. Right. <laughs> and this, I will tease, this is one of the, I guess not few, but I have not seen that In my journey to watch all of Christian Bale's films, this is one I haven't seen. And I'm mm. so, like, high school era Caroline is so excited that I finally get to cross this one off the list. I'm, I'm psyched about it. I mean, I have no idea what I'm going to see. Oh, but, get ready. Uh, it's wild. Have you seen it, Jules? I've seen Shaft. Yeah, Shaft is a wild Look, you say you're not the movie expert, and here you are. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not. More knowledge I'm not. than either of us. I truly, like, if you ask me to watch a movie, I have to prepare myself, like, the day before. Because, <laughs> and I will sit there, I think on Saturday, I watched about 10 hours of Riverdale on Netflix. <laughs> Felt fine. But you ask me to watch a single film, I'm like, oh my god, who has the time? <laughs> I do understand that sensation. <laughs> yeah, we're looking forward to that uh, that wild film. In the meantime, we want to say thank you, Jules, for joining us today. Thank you for Honestly, having me. So lovely to have your wit and insight on this Aww, one. You're so uh, sweet. Where can our listeners find you out there in the world? Oh, you know, I'm usually like hiding under like a a, a dumpster somewhere. Uh, <laughs> what are some your local dumpsters? <laughs> you might see me if you lucid dream. You might find me um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. inside of. See you in uh, the dreaming. <laughs> this is what I say as I pull up my my Instagram handle. Uh, yeah, you can find me on Instagram at it's jewels. Um, I T S J O O L Z. Uh, but you can also find me on my podcast, The Pod has been cast which is a sci-fi D actual play podcast if you're a fan of like mass effect or cowboy bebop any of those like sort of like a, a new age sci-fi sort of stories um this is definitely for you it follows uh three misfits as they venture into the void and get into trouble and fire lasers at each other and sometimes other people so yeah you can find us uh wherever you get your podcast um or the pod has been cast.com or on instagram at the phb cast it's great and your whole team on that is like so wonderful so oh they're great people we have a lot of, we have a lot of fun so, yeah, yeah give it a listen anyway Please. thanks jules <laughs> thank you bye <laughs> 
Roll Calling is produced and recorded by us, Ned Baker and Caroline Sita. Our theme music was created by Patrick Buddy, and our logo was designed by Nick Wanserski. You can follow us on Twitter at Roll Calling and email us at rollcalling at gmail.com. That's Roll, R-O-L-E. Please rate and review our podcast anywhere you have the opportunity to do that. That helps us a ton. We'll be back next time to continue our Jeffrey Wright series with Shaft. Shaft. Until Until then. Not piss paint, John. Oxidation art.